We are in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 42. We're at the, towards the end of the chapter. And it's uh, been, uh, we're in that part of the story of Joseph where the brothers go to Egypt and uh, encounter their brother for the first time unknown to them. And, uh, and then return in the passage that we're going to look at today, they return home uh, to their father. And uh, last week we looked at uh, uh, verses, I think about verses 10 through 28 or so. And uh, today I'd like to look at verses 29 through 38. But if you'll look down, uh, 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 look down at the passages that we, uh, the passage we looked at last week, and uh, just kind of refresh your mind and, and let's kind of review that. What did we talk about last week? What are some of the points that we made? We were in 21 through 28 last week. I'm sorry, I said 10 through 28, but it was 21 through 28. Y'all are quiet. A bunch of you are here this morning. weren't here last week. So. so we talked about the comparison of you know, their making for their lives, including their innocence, and it brings to, to their memory you think Joseph was pleased for his life. Okay. Yeah, Joseph has constructed the situation in such a way that that the brothers are being reminded and to some degree experiencing the very things that Joseph experienced uh, when they were mistreating him. And so he's, he's kind of constructed the test to see how will they respond when they find themselves in a situation similar to the one that he was in. What else? I thought it was um, that it's actually grace that they're being given but the sin distorts the grace and they think it's a punishment yeah. from God. Yeah. It really is. You know, as you, as you read the story, you get caught up in their viewpoint and you forget what's really happening. So you get caught up in their viewpoint and they're, and they're talking about, okay, now finally, you know, the, as, as Reuben says, and now comes the reckoning for his blood, you know. And this is their perspective when really what's happening and God is, God is moving in a, just a wonderful way in a spectacular way to save the family and to reconcile the family and, and uh, to provide them with all that they need. And so, so God is working through Joseph to do all this. But, but to Joseph's brothers, because of their sin and because of their guilt, uh, their perception of what's happening is totally perverted and they think that God is judging them and that judgment is coming down on them. And it's a real lesson to us of how, how sin in our lives distorts our perception or our understanding of the processes of God in our lives. So God's working in our lives, but oftentimes sin distorts how we see that and we don't see it. Uh, and we'll see more of that today, incidentally, as we go on. What else? The fact that Simeon is bound in front of them. We talked a little bit about. Um, he wants to see if it's someone's regret 
earth is really a repentance mm-hmm. and change in action. Okay. And so he finds him right there before their eyes. He would think, well, they could just take it out and yeah. know what's going to happen. Yeah. He does it right. In front yeah, of yeah. And, and what is the what is the point? This relates to what you just said. What is it? What is the thing that they acknowledge being guilty of in the in the passage we looked at last week? Not listening. Not listening, isn't it? Yeah. So, and we talked a lot about that. The, the striking thing is that it's it's not so much that they're saying we're guilty for selling into slavery, but what they say is that we're that we are guilty because we did not. We saw the distress of his soul and we did not listen. And then when Reuben rebukes them and says, you know, I told you so. <laughs> what he says is, what he says is I, I warned you of these things and you would not listen. And so the thing we were talking about last week is, is their sin of selling Joseph was serious enough as it is. But it is made more serious. It's a more grievous sin because they were twice warned. One, by the pleadings of Joseph, and second, by the pleadings of Reuben. They were twice warned that this was the wrong thing to do, that they were heading down the wrong path, and they persisted in it anyway, and they, were, they just stubbornly refused to listen. And this is the thing that, that the Holy Spirit in the passage brings out to us is the greater sin. The greater sin here is their refusal to listen to the admonitions, to the words that God sent to them, first through the pleadings and the distress of Joseph's soul, and then second through the words of Reuben, warning them not to do what they did. And, and so we talked about how we have, we have sins in our lives sometimes that's almost inadvertent sin or sins of presumption or hidden sins or things we're not really aware of and we... We sin and and those are one thing. But we have other sins in our life where we're going down a path and we're headed in the wrong direction. And God speaks to us in one way or another, either through his word or he puts somebody in our path that says this is you you shouldn't go this way. And and when we close our ears to that, when we when we disregard God's admonitions to us and we persist in sin, that's the greater sin. And that's the thing that particularly is brought out in that passage we looked at last week is is that the brothers are particularly acutely aware of the fact not just that they had what they had done to Joseph but that they had heard the pleadings of his heart and the distress of his soul and they had not listened to it so what else What happens when they're on their way home? Mm-hmm. And what is their reaction to that? Okay. They're afraid and they say, what do they say? What has God done to us? Okay. So, so this is kind of a... Uh, this is kind of a continuation of the thing that starts there with, with Reuben's words to them. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. And so what, it's, what seems to be happening here, and, and actually they're, uh, when on their way home, they, they only discover money in one sack. The, the rest of it comes a little later. But they discover that money in the sack. And, and what, what it, from their perspective again, again the, the perception they have is that now the judgment has 
begun. Now the retribution for their sin and for their guilt has begun. And it's like it's, it's just going to be this kind of slow grinding process that's going to consume them one at a time. Okay. So, uh, so first, uh, first is, the, is the loss of Simeon. Okay? And now we have one of the other. And it's not, we're not told which brother it is, but we have one of the brothers who's now obviously been framed and, and he's going to be accused of thievery. And, and so the chances of saving his life is gone. And this, this guy is going to be consumed. Uh, this brother will be consumed. And then, of course, they have the prospect of what's going to happen to Benjamin. And so what they see is, is that the consequence of their sin is beginning to destroy the whole family. And, and so it's like this, it's kind of like this bulldozer, if you will, that's, that's beginning to kind of roll over the family. Again, this is their perception. This bulldozer of retribution, of justice, of God's judgment. And, and so when they say, what has God done? It's not so much a question as they're trying to to figure out something here, it's more an exclamation of awe and wonder and fear as they, as they recognize God has now begun this process and it's going to consume us all. And so it's a, they really are in a, in, a, in a very terrifying situation. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where on the one hand you were going to be accused of spying and executed or on the other hand you're just simply going to starve to death over a period of time. <laughs> But that's the options they face. Okay? Those are the only options they face. And that's why they are so filled with fear. Okay? Anything else before we go on? Okay, let's pick it up in verse 29. And uh, they finally come back to Canaan and they encounter their father. And you can imagine on that trip back, which probably takes about a week to ten days or so, on that trip back from Egypt, to the uh, to the land uh, of Canaan, uh, how much they must have dreaded having to tell their father uh, the uh, story of their and the encounter uh, that they had in Egypt. So it says, when they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that happened to them, saying, "The man, the lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the country." But we said to him, we are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve uh, brothers, sons of our father. One is no longer alive and the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. The man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will give your brother to you and you may trade in the land. Now, it came about as they were emptying their sacks that, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were dismayed. Their father, Jacob, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. And Simeon is no more. And you would make, take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father saying, You may put my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. But put him in my care and I will return him to you. But Jacob said, 
My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he alone is left. If harm should befall him on the journey you are taking, then you will bring my gray hair down to soul in sorrow. Okay. Well, it's just a continuation of that what we talked about last week. This is really one of the most poignant stories, passages in all of Scripture. You know, I I can't I can't think of any that are so that are so loaded with pathos and emotion and and poignancy and feeling and uh, and as I said last week, I, I I hope that in our analysis of the passage and of the story that we don't lose that sense of of wonder and emotion and the emotional impact of this passage because I think that helps us to understand better uh, uh, what God wants us to understand from the passage. But this really is just a very poignant story. So they uh, so they return home and uh, and they encounter their father and the stuff that goes on here. This passage uh, to me, as I was studying this week, it just speaks to me personally so much because I, I can see so much as we go through our lesson today. Maybe you'll see it too uh, in your own life. But I can see so much the parallels in my own life with Jacob and particularly with Jacob, but also to some degree with Reuben. And, and there are a couple, I think, really significant lessons that we need to learn from these guys as we as we look at what goes on. But the, the brothers come back and and so they they basically give a report uh, to Jacob of, of all that happened. And when it says that they gave a report of all that happened, I think it's pretty clear they didn't give him every single detail. And we'll, we'll see that as we go through the story. Uh, it, it seems pretty clear to me that as they were coming back to Canaan and thinking about having to give this report to Dad, they're trying to think about, okay, you know, how can we tell this in the way that will, you know, how can we soften the blow to dad? Because this is not going to be the kind of things dad wants to hear. You know, he sent his sons off to buy grain in Egypt. It's a, you know, it was a, it was an expedition of hope and expectation. You know, we're going to go down there. We've got money. We can go down there and we can buy grain and our family can live. And, and, you know, how could he ever have imagined that things would turn out as badly as they seem to have turned out? And so you can imagine that the brothers, as they're as they're approaching uh, home again, are trying to think, you know, okay, how are we going to tell Dad? You know that, you know, I mean, when he get there, he's going to see Simeon's not with us. You know, what are we going to say to him? Uh, and and what, you know, gee, how are we going to break the news to him that he's got to, you know, he's got to loosen the reins on Benjamin and let Benjamin go down to Egypt with us and. Given the way things turned out in Egypt, you know, the likelihood of dad being willing to do that isn't going to be real strong. And so they're, they're trying, they're contemplating all this. And so when they get home, they begin to tell the story. And, and what strikes me here in verse 30, it says, they said, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with them. And, and I was just thinking about that. Here, here these guys are, they're talking about this guy down in Egypt. This guy, this Lord of the land. And they talk about him. And later, Jacob will talk about him. And they're having all these discussions about this man down in Egypt. Who is whom? 
their brother and their son. And they're having all this discussion and they're trying to figure out, you know, how are we going to handle this situation? And and eventually we'll get to the part next week where where Jacob finally agrees and agrees to send his uh, send Benjamin. And, and then he talks about how to appease this man. There's all this discussion of this man, but they have no idea who this man is they're talking about. They have no idea it's Joseph. And. And so, to some degree, it, it's kind of ironic, it's fascinating to us to see that they're, they're kind of operating in this darkness. They're operating blindly, so to speak. But there's something else about this passage that strikes me. They're not only operating in blindness about the fact that they're dealing with Joseph, but you'll notice... After their comment that they make, you know, what has what has God done to us there on the way back in in the whole passage today? There's no mention of God. So it's not only are they unaware that they're dealing with Joseph. uh, it, It seems like particularly with Jacob, he's unaware he's dealing with God. And so Jacob, it seems, is viewing the entire situation as just the turn of fate. And he doesn't see at all. There's no acknowledgement of God. There's no recognition that somehow God might be in this. That's all absent from this. So what strikes me here is is how how much Jacob and the brothers are just operating in a fog and they cannot see reality. And of course, the reason they don't know who Joseph is is because Joseph has concealed himself. But the reason they don't know that God is involved is because they have forgotten some things that they should not have forgotten. So, so at any rate, they start talking about this great man, Zaphonathpaneah, down there in Egypt and how he spoke to them harshly and he took them for being spies. And, and then they talk about uh, how they defended themselves. Now, you'll notice that when they give the report to Jacob of the defense that they gave to Joseph, they changed the order. Okay, when they made their defense to Joseph, uh, when he first accused them of being spies, they made a threefold defense. Remember that we talked about. There were three aspects to their defense before Joseph, and the first part of their defense was what? No, before that. No, before that. They're sons of one man. Okay, the first thing they said to Joseph, because it was their strongest argument, was, "We are sons of one man. We are honest men. We are not spies." Okay, and then when Joseph countered and said, "No, you are spies," then they dropped the last two because there was no way to prove that, (laughs) and they focused on the first point, which is, "We are the sons of one man. We're twelve brothers." And then they went on to talk about about Joseph and Benjamin. Uh, so that's the order when they when they made their appeal was. We are sons of one man, we are honest men, we are not spies, but when they were give the report to their father of what they said to, to uh, Joseph, they said, we told them we are honest men, we are not spies, we are the sons of one father. OK, now. Uh, I don't think I'm I hope I'm not reading too much into this, but it seems to me that what the brothers have done is they just kind of put the worst to the last (laughs) because they realize when they tell dad that they revealed all this information about the family, dad's not going to be real happy about that. And that becomes clear in the passage we're going to look at next week. 
uh, <coughs> that, uh, that he uh, holds them culpable for that. <coughs> but so it's like they're kind of putting the bad news off to the end. OK. And so and, and they do the same with the whole thing with Simeon and Benjamin. They mention first that Simeon is being held before they mention that Benjamin has to come in order to convince the guy that uh, that they are honest men. So it's like they have calculated and, and I don't hold them culpable for this. It's like they calculated how are we going to minimize the impact on dad? How are we going to break this to him? Uh, you know, it's bad news. He's got to hear it all. But it's like they kind of put the worst news off to the end and they can kind of let it just kind of, you know, just one thing after another. And then finally they give him the worst part of the story at the end. You know, I, I don't know if that was the right way to do it or not, but that appears to be what they've done. Okay. So they tell dad about, they tell their father Jacob about, about all that happened, about how they, how they went down. You'll notice also, incidentally, in the telling of the story that they, they say that he stipulated the, that the, this man, the Lord of the land, stipulated that they were to leave one of their brothers with him. In reality, what really happened to Simeon? He was bound and thrown in prison. Okay, they don't tell that part of the story. Okay, so so it's like it's like they're they they've tried to to mute this as much as they can. What else don't they tell their dad? Yeah, <laughs> they don't they don't tell their dad anything about their discussion about why all this is happening. They don't say anything to Dad. Well, Dad, we really think all this is happening to us and to you because we are guilty of what we did to Joseph. They don't tell Dad that. Okay. So they, so in one sense, when it says they tell him, they told him all that happened to him. Well, yeah, they, they kind of gave him a full report, but they left out some pretty important things. Simeon's in prison. He's bound and he's in prison. And uh, and uh, by the way, to be honest with you, we think what's really happening here is the reckoning for the blood of Joseph, for, of whom we are guilty. I don't tell him that. Okay. Now we know because we've all read the story before and heard the story since we were, you know, crumb crutchers in Sunday school. So we all know what ultimately uh, Jacob's response is going to be to this proposal of Benjamin going down to Egypt. Okay. But what's striking to me is that he does not yet object. Okay, the story's been told. Uh, we get down there to uh, uh, verse 34. But bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will give you brother to you uh, that you may trade in the land. And then they go on to the next event. Okay, and Jacob does not apparently immediately respond to this proposal about about Benjamin. But then something else happens, which finally just kind of, you know, no pun intended, breaks the camel's back. Okay, it's the straw that finally causes Jacob to snap. And what is that event that happens that finally causes Jacob to snap? Yeah, they found the money in the bags. Okay, so this happened with one bag with one of the brothers when they were on their way home. But the other, uh, the other nine brothers, the other eight, the eight, 
uh, you know, they hadn't opened their bags until they get home. And so they have this discussion. They have this report. They give their report. This is pretty depressing news, of course, uh, to Jacob. But at least we've got the grain out there on the donkeys, you know. So then they go out to the animals and they get the grain. They get the bags of grain and they open those bags of grain and they pour them out and out pours these bundles of money for all the brothers. And if you're viewing it from the brother's perspective, as we've been trying to do as we're going through this story, as they see those bundles of money pouring out, what are they thinking? Why? Yeah. Okay. But they know they didn't rip off the man, right? Okay, so somebody's framing them. They don't know if it's Joseph. They don't know who it is. But they know somebody in Egypt's got it in for them. Okay. So now they really are in a crisis. Have you ever starved to death? Have you ever seen anybody starve to death? I haven't. But I can't imagine... What a slow, excruciating death it is. Maybe more for them. They're responsible for their family. Well, yeah, I was going to get to that, but it's not just me starving to death. It's I've got to watch my kids starve to death. I've got to watch my wife starve to death. You know, we here in America, we, you know, we don't think in these terms. You know, we, you know, we we go through a bad economy like we've gone through uh, the last few years or whatever, and and it's hard and it's tough. But there there are backup systems and there you know there are ways to keep people from starving to death. So we don't you know we don't have very many people starving to death in America, and if we have, there are not very many that have ever seen it. Okay, because there's there's always some way to survive. But in this situation, in this place, at this time in world history. Starvation is a terrible thing and it's unavoidable. There's only one place in all the world that has food. All the rest of the, all the world is experiencing this famine. There are no other options. There's no government program here to back them up. If they can't go to Egypt to buy grain, this family will starve to death. One by one. So that's one option. The other option is in desperation. They go down to Egypt. But not only do they have uh, Zaphonath Paneah, who doesn't think very nicely of them in the first place. But somebody in Egypt, either he or somebody else, is out to get them. They've been framed. So it's not... You know, if I come home from Walmart and I find, you know, my purchase money in my bag, it's no big deal. You know, I just go back to Walmart and I say, you, for, you know, you gave me the wrong change or whatever. You know, it's, it's no big deal. But here they realize this is no accident. All of us have our money in our sacks. Somebody is trying to set us up. Somebody wants us dead. And so they are filled with fear. They are dismayed. And not only are the brothers dismayed, and the brothers are dismayed quite honestly because as we noticed last, as we observed last week, they think this is the retribution that they have dreaded now for 20 years. You know, for 20 years they kind of thought, well, we, you know, we've gotten away with it, but, you know, someday there's going to be a reckoning and now that reckoning has come and and they see how relentless it is, how it just progressively, just one thing after another, just begins to add up and it becomes overwhelming. 
<clears throat> so that's their perspective. But Jacob's perspective is different. You know, of course, he doesn't he doesn't know that the brothers are guilty in the way that they are guilty. Uh, so so he's not viewing it as retribution. But but what Jacob does say and and his perspective that he does have is is really instructive. Notice what he says. One, one, okay, so he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't apparently really respond when they gave the report until he went out and emptied the grain. And then he saw the money and he, and he saw what was happening and he just couldn't keep silent anymore. And so he says in verse 36, he says, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And you would take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Now, when he says, you have bereaved me of my children, and then he says, Joseph is no more, as I, and I alluded to this verse a couple of weeks ago uh, when we talked about this, but uh, it, it may seem here like, Joseph, that, like Jacob knows what happened. Okay, it, 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 it seems like when you first read that, that maybe he knows what's happening. I would suggest to you he doesn't know what's happening. Because there's no indication in the, in, in the context of the narrative where we are that, that he perceives that God is judging his, his sons for what they did, although that's the way they perceive it. There's no indication that Jacob perceives it that way. And you'll notice that, that Jacob blames them not only for his bereavement of Joseph, but he also blames them for his bereavement of whom? Simeon. Simeon, okay. But they really had nothing to do with... They're not really culpable for Simeon's situation, right? I mean, that was really out of their hands, okay? So, so what's, what's happening here with Jacob? Why, why is Jacob blaming his sons for the loss of Simeon? And why is he blaming his sons for the loss of Joseph? And why is he blaming his sons for the possible loss of Benjamin? Yes, Gary. The last time I can remember him going off on this case like this was when Simeon and Levi did what they did to Fahrenheit. Shechem? Shechem. Uh-huh. I just wonder if maybe he's not figuring there's some retribution for that. Okay. Well, that's a thought. I haven't even thought about that. He thinks maybe it's coming back on, it's come back on the whole family because of what they did at Shechem. That's a thought. Yeah. Is he just saying it happened under your watch? So yeah, I kind of think he's just kind of putting two to two together. He says, you know, every time you guys are off by yourself, bad stuff happens. You know, <laughs> right? Can't trust my kids. You know. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I tend to think that's what's going on here. Is when bad stuff really starts happening. What do we instinctively do? We've got to find somebody to blame. You know, that, that, you know that's what's going on in our, in our legal system today, isn't it? You know, we, we sue everybody at the drop of a hat. No matter what happens, we, we've got to blame somebody for every bad thing that happens. Okay. So it's just an, it's an instinctive thing we do 
when stuff starts going bad in our lives, we start pointing our fingers at the people we love. Why do we do that? You know, I really think, and, and it, you know, it's so instinctive. We do it so quickly. You know, you, you do it just driving down the highway. You're driving down, you're, you're driving, you know, commuting from here to Oklahoma City or whatever, and you get in a bad traffic situation. It's, it's really, you know, what do you do? You start blaming everybody else. You start blaming all the other drivers, right? The stupid drivers, you know. There's nothing ever occurred to you that you're the stupid driver, you know. We always point our finger at other people when we get in bad situations. How often when we get in those bad situations are we inclined to think, you know, God may be doing something here. But instead, we point the finger at other people. And oftentimes it's at the people we love or the people we're closest to. And as I was meditating on that, I was thinking on that this morning, I was thinking, is that not a ploy of Satan? That when stuff really starts going bad in our lives, when stuff really starts hitting the fan, one of the ploys of Satan is he gets us blaming the people around us to disrupt relationships with the very people we need the most when we're in those situations. What Jacob and those brothers need at this moment is they need each other like they've never needed each other before. But instead, what are they doing? They're pointing a finger at one another. So, so I think that's what's going on. And maybe some of this other stuff. Maybe Shechem's playing in there, you know, the other stuff we mentioned, maybe all of that. But some of it, I think, it's just our instinctive reaction when, when our life starts falling apart or when things start falling apart on us. And we just instinctively want to, to blame somebody for it. And, and so this is what Jacob does. He says, you bereave me. You have, he says, Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Now, in that statement, Simeon is no more, you can see that, jo- that Jacob's already made up his mind. He's going to sacrifice Simeon to save Benjamin. So he's already writing Simeon off. Okay. And he says, Simeon is no more. And he says, and you would take Benjamin. And then what does he say? What does he say? All these things are against me. Now, before we get... Before we get too hard on uh, on Jacob here, and I'm going to be kind of hard on him, but before we do, I want you to think about Jacob's life. I want you to think about the things this man has gone through. When he was yet but a young man, certainly it was his fault, but when he was a young man, he had to flee from home and family for his life. He goes up to family up there to Laban and he works for Laban for seven years and he gets betrayed. Ends up marrying the wrong woman. Then he has to work seven more years to get the right woman. And then he works for him even beyond that. He works for Laban and it's a constant struggle. He's constantly battling with Laban trying to get the upper hand because Laban's always lying to him and changing his wages. 
And then he finally flees and he comes back home and he gets and he's hardly back home for just a brief short period of time. And two of his sons go out and slaughter the city of Shechem. And so he has to flee from the area of Shechem and he's headed south back towards Isaac and, and dad. And on his way, his beloved wife dies, Rachel. And, and then not too long after that, he sends Joseph off to check on his sons who have gone up to Shechem to graze the flock and then they've gone on to Dotham and Joseph goes and he gets, he gets killed and eaten by a wild animal. And then his family is facing starvation. They're having a famine and, it's, and, and, and they're in an agrarian culture and they're in an agrarian family and they are facing starvation. And so they hear that there's food to Egypt. And so they, he sends his sons down to Egypt and they get to Egypt and, and they encounter Zaphnath Paneah, the second most powerful man in the land. And he takes them for spies and treats them harshly and throws them in jail. And then finally releases them, but, say, but keeps Simeon back. And so now he's lost Simeon. And then he comes back. And then they come back and, and then he finds out that they've been framed. And, and then they want to take Benjamin. This guy's had a rough life. Now, I, I've left out all the good parts. You notice that? <laughs> okay, I left out the good parts, okay? But this guy has had a rough life. And at this point, the evil just seems to be building. One tragic circumstance after another. And finally, it's more than Jacob can take. And he just goes, all these things are against me. He's at this point in Jacob's life, he has this fatalism. There's no, there's no sense here. We don't, we don't get any sense in this passage that, that Jacob sees or recognizes or hopes for the hand of God in any of this. It's just life has just turned against him and he is just in despair. Now, Jacob is the elect of God. Jacob has wrestled with God. Jacob has spoken with God. Jacob has heard God's voice. But but now just the accumulation of all the bad junk that's happened in his life is just overwhelming him. And you know, and I know, that in our lives things like that happen. You know, it's we go through life sometimes and something really bad happens. But it kind of stands by itself and we kind of 
you know, it knocks us back on our heels for a while, but we get our balance and we go on. Okay. But there are some times in our lives when stuff just comes in groups. You know the old phrase, it never rains, but it pours. When, when just one bad report after another, one bad turn of events, one tragedy after another happens in our lives. You know, I, I, I just felt so, I felt so weird about this Friday night. Because uh, football is such an insignificant thing. Right? A national championship, you know, what is it in the, in the grand scheme of things? It's nothing. And yet, I know what it's like when my team loses the football game. I know how I feel. And, and, I, and I know how crushing it is when your hope and your expectation has been built so high, you know. And so, I'm watching that game Friday night between, between Oklahoma State and Iowa State. But, of course, we're, and all of us who are watching it or paying any attention to it are watching it in the context of what had just happened earlier in the day, right? We're all watching in the context of the, of the tragedy that struck the OSU family that morning. And that in itself was just overwhelming, was it not? Especially when you add that on top of what happened to the OSU men's basketball team ten years earlier. And so then you have, you have their women's coach and, and, and his assistant and, and the, Senate, the former senator and his wife, and you have them all killed in this plane accident Thursday night, and they learn about it Friday morning right before this, this game, which is supposed to be a walk-away game, right? And, and, and you wonder, how can they even play a game under these circumstances? But they go out there and they do it. And, and they're on their way to a national championship game. And they lose. They lose to a team that's five and four. And, and, I'm, just, and I'm just thinking, how do, you, how, how do you deal with all this stuff when it just piles on so hard and so fast? But all of that is... Really, in some sense, nothing compared to what Jacob's gone through. But in our lives, sometimes life is like that, isn't it? It just Sometimes it just comes at us so fast and so hard and we can't catch our breath and it just keeps coming at us. And that is the moment when we are so tempted to despair. That's the moment when we're tempted to say, all these things are against me. And this, this passage is so convicting to me because I am so much like Jacob. You know, there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the kind of people that are kind of optimistic and, you know, it'll all work out and they just, you know, and, and, and they kind of all see the bright side, so always see the bright side of things. And then there's people like me. You know, and if there's a bad side to it, I'll see it. And if there's a reason to worry, I'll worry. And if there's a bad way to interpret things or understand things, I can do it. I'm like Jacob. Yeah, Ron. I just had a thought when you said all these things against me. And the way you read it, you said, 
Bacon said all these things are against me. And so that kind of implies to me that everything's just kind of going against me. But what if you what if you read that all of these things are against me? With the emphasis on me, then it sounds like he's saying all of the stuff that's happening is because of me. All of the stuff that's going on is really because of the way I do. Uh, well, that's an interesting thought, but it's still wrong, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, it's not. It, it's not. I mean, the things that are happening with his brother, with his sons in Egypt, are because of what his sons did. So, I mean, you could say, well, they did what they did because their dad wasn't a good dad. But yeah, he didn't know all that. But uh, so, either way, it would still be wrong. But the the thing that struck me is what is what does Jacob need to hear right now? What he needs some good. You know what he needs? He needs to hear the words of a descendant of Benjamin. He needs to hear the words of a son of Benjamin. When he writes in Romans chapter eight. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the son of Benjamin right now. And when we read those verses, you know, this, this is always a big verse for, you know, security of the believer. So, we, you know, we always like to use these verses when we're talking about the security of the believer, right? Which is good. That's fine. I don't have any problem with that. But these verses apply every time in our lives we're being overwhelmed by evil. These verses. Romans 8. Nothing separates us from the law of God. Every man standing there around those sacks of grain that day was a, was a child of God, was an elect of God, was under the covenant promises of God. And yet they'd all lost sight of it. And what if... And of course, Jacob couldn't remember what Paul was going to write 1,500 years or whatever later, you know, so he couldn't remember that. But he knew this principle because he had wrestled with God and prevailed. And he had heard God say to him, your descendants are going to be more innumerable than the sand of the sea. To him, not just to Abraham, but to Jacob, God had said that. And so... What is the answer to Jacob's despair? 
is just simply faith in the promises of God, isn't it? And, and so when we are being overwhelmed by evil and when, when the evil is flooding over us like it is, what is, what is the answer to our despair? We, 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 we just got to grab onto those promises and hang on for dear life. It's all we've got. When, when, when the sea bellows of, of tragedy and bad news are just flooding over us and overwhelming us, we have to hold on to the promise of God. And Jacob didn't do that. Well, then very briefly, Reuben now, if... if if Jacob is an example of despair, Reuben is an example of desperation. And Reuben is facing the death of his wife and his children. And, 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 and he feels responsible for all the stuff that's gone wrong. And, and so he says, he says, well, Dad, listen, you can, you can kill two of my kids if I don't bring him back. Excuse me? I was I, I made some comment on Facebook yesterday about we're going to talk about the enigma of Reuben today and and uh, Tony Dave's son Tony uh, Facebook back to me says yeah he makes a better sandwich than the leader <laughs> and I go yeah that's that's true Reuben's not a very good leader and right here he blows it you know he he feels responsible he's the oldest in the family he's he's got to do something about this situation but he I mean he just loses it he makes this absurd proposition. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll give you two of my grandkids or two of your grandkids. And if I don't bring your son back, you can kill a couple of your grandkids. How's that? Well, that really solved the problem, didn't it? Why do you say that? Because it's the most valuable thing he had. And he was trying to convince. He was desperate. He was desperate. And he was so desperate, he would say anything. Now, Commentators speculate back and forth about whether or not he was serious or whether he was just using hyperbole, you know. But it really doesn't matter because his suggestion is both preposterous and evil. It's an evil suggestion. And, yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. It's an evil suggestion. And even if he didn't intend it, the word would certainly get back to his sons. What would they think? Yeah. Okay, so... So he's so it's an evil suggestion, whether he was sincere or not. But it's also a preposterous suggestion. What good will it do? You know, is this really going to assuage my father's grief if he loses Benjamin? To lose a couple of his grandkids too? Well, that will help. But the other thing that's remarkable about it is what, he's desperate. What he, what's he trying to do? He's trying to convince his dad that he's going to take care of Benjamin, right? That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to do something, give, give his dad something that's so precious that his dad will be sure that, that, ben, that, that Reuben is going to take care of Benjamin. The same guy who took care of Joseph and took care of Simeon. Whoops. That doesn't work out very well, does it? This is a guy who couldn't protect Joseph, at least from, from their perspective at this point. A guy who couldn't protect Joseph and a guy who couldn't protect Simeon now says, Dad, I guarantee I'll take care of Benjamin. But he's desperate. 
Well, if faith in the promises of God is the answer to despair, what is the answer to desperation? You see, in, in, when we are desperate, we do really stupid stuff, don't we? When we are desperate, we do really sinful stuff. So what, what is the answer when we're really desperate? When we're facing situations, whether they're financial or relationship or job situations or whatever, and we are just desperate. And we are so tempted to do evil things or preposterous, foolish things. What is the answer to that? I believe it's faith in the ways of God. And I believe that God's in charge and that I just need to do what's right. And, even if I do, and, and if I can't see any way that doing what's right will solve my problem, I still need to do what's right. So my answer to despair is faith in the promises of God. And my answer to desperation is faith in the ways of God. Okay, well next week we'll go on with this very hard story. Thank <laughs> you.